0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 367. It's titled, What Investment Strategies Do Best... During high inflation periods. Last week, I attended a family gathering for the U.S. holiday of Thanksgiving. I spoke to family members to see how they were doing. I was particularly interested in those that worked in industry to see what their recent experience has been due to the supply chain challenges that we've seen. One family member manages a chemical plant. He mentioned how difficult it has been just to get containers to ship out the chemicals that they produce. And there's really some randomness to when things show up. They've had a significant jump in orders as their customers are worried about getting enough supplies so they order more, demand has boomed, and that has led to some definite challenges. I spoke to another family member who brokers trucks. Customers call to find transportation for different shipments around the US. He says it's been crazy. Just the challenges both to get trucks and the demand. We are in a high inflation period. Inflation bottomed out in May 2020 if we're measuring the year over year increase in the consumer price index. In May 2020, it was 1.7%. The most recent release in the U.S., the Consumer Price Index, this measure of inflation rose 6.2% year-over-year. Germany, year-over-year consumer inflation, is over 5%. It's over 4% in the U.K. Two months before we hit the bottom of inflation, back in March 2020, I released episode 292, Will Infinite Money Save the Economy? I said that inflation comes when there's a huge increase in the money supply. Usually that increase comes through bank lending, but it can also come from the Federal Reserve creating money and it flowing out into the economy, particularly if it goes directly to consumers. I continued, if you get all this money and there are capacity constraints because there's not enough goods and services being produced— but people are still willing to spend the money, then that could lead to not enough materials and inputs, so prices go up. Businesses start raising their prices, and those that are employed start demanding higher wages, so you get into an inflationary mindset, particularly if there's a supply shock because there's not enough being produced. That was one scenario I outlined a classic case of inflation, and that is what has happened. Now, I also said we could get a demand shock where people aren't able to go out and buy things, or they don't want to buy things and want to hoard their money. So businesses start dropping their prices to encourage buying. We didn't know which it would be, but the amount of money creation has been absolutely astounding. The U.S. budget deficit for the fiscal year ending September 2021, was $2.8 trillion. That was the second highest budget deficit on record. The highest was the year prior, 2020, $3.1 trillion. The 2021 deficit represents 12.4% of GDP, or the U.S.'s economic output of goods and services. The 2020 deficit was 15% of GDP. Typically, the U.S. Treasury would issue treasury bonds for that $6 trillion of deficits for fiscal 2020 and 2021. But because the Federal Reserve was running a massive asset purchase program, also known as quantitative easing, the Federal Reserve bought almost $5 trillion of U.S. Treasury bonds, which means much of that deficit spending led to money creation. And we see that in the M2 money supply, this monetary aggregate, increased from September 2019 through September 2021 by about $6 trillion. That's more money flowing into the economy that has increased the inflationary pressures. Throughout the entire modern history of the U.S., there's only been two other occasions where we've had two consecutive years of double-digit deficits as a percent of GDP. Both other times, it was during World Wars. In 1918 and 1919, during World War I, the U.S. deficit to GDP was 12% and 17%, respectively. In the 1942 to 1945 period, the annual budget deficit as a percent of GDP was 12%, 27%, 21%, and 21%. We are on new ground with double-digit deficits during peacetime. We're seeing capacity constraints, supply shortages. There has been demand. On the other hand, we now have the Omicron COVID mutation. We've seen oil prices collapse from $85 a barrel a month ago to below $68 a barrel as of yesterday. Falling oil prices and natural gas prices will reduce inflationary pressure. If we look at the 6.2% year-over-year consumer price index increase in the U.S., 2.4 percentage points was due to energy. If energy prices fall, then that can drag down inflation. There are also disinflationary forces. Demographics. Fewer births and fewer people mean less inflationary pressure because there's less demand for the goods and services that are produced. India recently announced that they like China and the US have seen fertility rates drop below the replacement rate. India in their most recent National Family Health Survey that they conduct every 5 years found that total fertility rate across India was 2.0 for the years 2019 to 2021 compared to 2.2 in 2015 to 2016 a country needs a total fertility rate of 2.1 to maintain a stable population. That 2.1 is the replacement rate. Now, India is below that. China is below that. The U.S. is below that because it's expensive to have children, to raise children. And because there's less infant mortality, many families don't feel a need to have more children in order to assure some will survive, to be there and potentially take care of their parents when their parents reach an advanced age, demographics is a disinflationary force. It's not leading to deflation, but it puts less upward pressure on prices. The other thing that's disinflationary is technology. There's an academic paper that I'm going to reference in a few minutes that they mentioned that in 1990 the cost of a gigabyte of data to produce it to send it was ten thousand dollars. Today is less than one cent. Meanwhile, they point out, in 1985, a Cray-2 supercomputer cost $32 million. Today, you can carry the computing power of hundreds of supercomputers in your pocket for $1,000. One of the challenges with government statisticians is how do we incorporate these technology improvements, these quality improvements, in measuring inflation? They adjust the basket of goods and services to reflect that so that inflation is less than it would be otherwise if it was simply comparing one object back to 1985 to the same object today. They adjust the price of the current object for any type of quality improvements. Back in Plus episode 361, this is a premium podcast episode I do for members of Money for the Rest of Us Plus, we looked at a research paper titled The Best Strategies for Inflationary Times. It's by Neville, Dramisma, Funnel, Harvey, and Hemert. They looked at inflation data in a number of different countries and tried to identify inflationary regimes. Now, it turns out it's not necessarily easy to figure out a high inflation regime because what they were trying to measure is unexpected inflation. In other words, right now we're seeing inflation of 6% in the U.S., but we build up to that over a period of two years. In their paper, they determined an inflationary regime had inflation of more than 5%, but they started when inflation started to increase. Then they measured disinflationary regimes when inflation came off its peak permanently. In other words, didn't fall and then go to a higher high. There was some subjectivity to how they measured inflation. And it's important because then they measured the returns of different financial assets during those inflationary regimes. Now, going back to 1926, they identified eight different inflationary regimes, not counting the current one we are in. 19% of the time, going back to 1926, was an inflationary regime. 81% of the time, there was not. They then looked at what asset classes did the best during those high inflationary regimes. One of the interesting things about these inflationary regimes is the last five all ended in a recession, presumably because the Federal Reserve was raising their policy rate really high in order to reduce the inflationary pressures. And it helped contribute to sending the economy into a recession. That's not the situation today. We're coming out of a recession. And we have high inflation, and the risk of a recession, at least currently, based on leading economic indicators, is low. The best-performing asset class during these high inflationary regimes was commodities. It had a real return, net of inflation, of 41%. But during the non-inflationary periods, it had a negative 1% return, a real return, and then 3% real return over all periods. Commodities have done very, very well over the past year, up 42% on a nominal basis as measured by the Invesco DB Commodity Tracking ETF, DBC. It's had phenomenal performance. It's up 36% year to date. However, that was after an extended period of poor returns. We were in a commodities bear market. If we look at the performance of that ETF, the Invesco DB Commodity Tracking ETF, its 10-year nominal annualized return is negative 2.8%. It's lost money over the past decade, which is one of the challenges with investing in commodities is it takes a lot of patience. You have to hold on for a long time until we get a period of unexpected inflation, like we're currently seeing. We weren't sure, given the pandemic, whether we would see a high inflation period. And we did. So if you're a patient investor, you could have held commodities over the past decade, but it would have been tempting to sell them at some point, given how poor performance had been. Turns out stocks, at least based on these academic data, didn't do so well. A long only stock index had a negative 7% real return during the inflationary regimes. It returned 10% real during the non-inflationary periods. And over all periods, it returned a 7% real return. As investors, we could have just held stocks for the long term and they would have outperformed inflation. But during those specific periods, that 19% of the time, stocks did not. Some reasons why the authors propose is... Higher and more volatile inflation creates economic uncertainty, and many of these cost increases can't be passed on to customers. And so margins contract, profitability falls, and that impacts the return of stocks. In addition, because interest rates could be rising, investors might not be willing to pay as much for stocks. The price-to-earnings ratios can fall because other asset classes potentially become more attractive relative to stocks, and because those interest rates are used to discount future earnings, future cash flows, and bring those cash flows into the present, the higher the interest rate used, the lower the present value or the value in today's dollars, the intrinsic value of the stock. So high inflation environment can see higher discount rates lower prices for stocks. Of the different stock sectors, energy performed the best, which is not surprising because commodities are booming during periods of unexpected inflation, and that boosts the profits of energy companies. During high inflation regimes, the energy sector had a 1% real return. The second best was healthcare at negative 1%, and everything else was more negative than that. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H dot slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. They found that residential real estate had a negative 2% real return during the high inflationary periods. That's not what we're seeing during this regime. Residential home prices have skyrocketed over the past two years, handily outpacing inflation. The authors found that collectibles did very well. Art, wine, stamps, all had significantly positive real returns between 5% and 9% during high inflation environments. This goes back to something that I pointed out earlier this year. We should own real things things that can hold their value during periods of high inflation. That includes land, art, antiques. Those assets have done well during this period. What prompted this episode, though, was a follow-up question I had from a PLUS member, where I went through the different strategies. The consistently best-performing strategy, based on the author's paper, were trend strategies strategies, momentum strategies. A trend or momentum strategy is where a particular security increases in price and continues to do so, or a security or an asset that falls in price continues to do so. There's some stickiness there. Trend strategies, particularly the kind that they were modeling in their paper, used futures. A futures contract, like the Bitcoin futures that we discussed a few episodes ago, is an agreement to buy or sell a specific asset at a future date. If you're participating in a trend strategy using futures, if you expect the underlying asset, be it a commodity, a currency, an equity index, to go up in price, you enter into that futures contract. And if the price of the underlying asset increases more than the consensus that is priced into the futures contract, then the speculator earns a positive return. If an investor believes the asset will fall in price and continue to fall in price, the investor can sell a future short. And if the asset continues to fall in price, when that investor closes out that futures contract, they can earn a profit, as long as the ending price is lower than what the consensus was. Because when you go short, your wager is that the price will fall. When you go long futures, your wager is the price will go up. When I saw this paper, I was pretty excited. This is an excellent way to outpace inflation. Then I dug a little deeper and found that I couldn't actually implement this on my own. They say they used a simple time series momentum strategy in which they use the historical returns for a given asset class And divided it by the volatility of the returns. Then they overweighted whatever particular asset class had the highest return for a given level of volatility. There was a lot of numbers crunching there. I don't have the time nor the resources to implement that. So I thought, well, I will find a managed futures ETF that can do that, that's taking advantage, has the algorithms to figure out what futures to go long, what futures to go short. The largest I could find is the Wisdom Tree Managed Futures Fund. WTMF is the ticker. It has $143 million in assets. Expense ratio is 0.65%. They use a tactical equity rotation model, an enhanced currency model, and an enhanced commodity models. Their models use momentum, trend, to figure out which of all the assets and futures to own. The returns have been incredibly disappointing. They're primarily market neutral, so the longs have to be offset by the shorts and benefit from this momentum or this trend. The 10-year annualized return is negative 0.5%. The five-year is only a 1% return. Another managed futures strategy is the first trust managed futures strategy. It owns stocks, commodities, currency futures. I went through its list. It has over 50 different future holdings. Expense ratio is 0.95%. Currently, the ETF is 75% long, 89% short, so its net exposure is negative 13%. Its five-year annualized return is only 0.7%. Both of these funds have had negative real returns after backing out inflation. Now, it isn't just ETFs that have struggled with managed futures. I found one report in the Financial Times that AQR has run a long-term hedge fund called the AQR Managed Future Strategy, has seen its assets fall from $12 billion in 2017 down to $1.5 billion today because clients have pulled out their money because performance has been so poor. One of the challenges with academic papers is oftentimes The data is very specific in terms of how they go about constructing the various indices. There was an academic paper I I recently read titled, Is There a Replication Crisis in Finance? The criticism of many academic papers, financial papers, that showed some type of positive alpha excess return couldn't be replicated. Some of the criticisms are there's just mistakes in the methodology and they couldn't repeat it or when they tried to implement it or repeat it, that there were so many factors used that they were sort of cherry-picked to show the excess return. That made me a little discouraged, and so I read through the paper, and these, these authors went through it again and, and determined that, no, most of these studies can be replicated and that the quality factor and the momentum factor and a low-risk factor, that the replication rate was 100% according to the methodology that they used. Apparently, it's very challenging to implement a trend-following momentum strategy using managed futures. What about a simpler strategy? Just using stocks, momentum stocks. There's the iShares MSCI USA Momentum Factor ETF. Very straightforward. They identify momentum-oriented stocks. Over the past five years, it's returned 21% annualized versus 18.2% for the iShares core S&P 500 ETF. That strategy worked. Now, over the past three years, the returns have been about the same. And over the past year, the S&P 500 has outperformed the Momentum ETF. The S&P returned 30%. The iShares MSCI USA Momentum Factor ETF returned 21.5%. But at least over a longer-term period, that momentum strategy worked. Not every U.S. momentum strategy has worked. There is the Invesco DWA momentum ETF, PDP. Its 10-year annualized return has been 15.8% versus 16.8% for the iShares core S&P 500 ETF. It performed in line with the S&P 500 over the past five years. Internationally, though, momentum seems to work even better. The iShares MSCI International Momentum Factor ETF (IMTM) returned 11.5% annualized over the past 5 years, compared with the Vanguard Total International Stock ETF (VXUS), a comparable ETF that returned 7.5% annualized. So momentum generated about 4 percentage points in excess return compared to just owning the broad market. Our conclusion then There are many different ways to approach trend following and momentum. There are also different ways to calculate inflation regimes, trying to figure out exactly when we should start measuring an increase in inflation, unexpected inflation, and then compare performance of a particular asset class relative to inflation. That academic paper mentioned that if their cutoff for inflation regime had been one month later, some of their trend-following strategies didn't do as well because there was one month where you saw a big drop-off, which is one of the challenges with momentum. You can get some momentum crashes, some big drawdowns. We've learned in this episode that a managed future strategy that employs trend-following is very, very difficult to implement. It's just challenging to get an informational edge in order to generate returns that offset the fees. Simpler momentum strategies, stock-focused strategies, seem to do the best and have generated excess returns. One of the things that I've learned about holding momentum funds, if you have found one that works, it's often good just to continue to hold it. I have been a longtime investor in the Driehaus Microcap Growth Fund, DMCRX. It is my best performing stock fund that I own. It's returned 32% annualized over the past five years. But I took some profits in January 2018 and sold approximately 60% of the holdings when investment conditions started to deteriorate, thinking I could go back in at a later time. I knew the fund was closed to new investors, but it was still open to existing investors, except then it wasn't. So when I tried to invest in the fund, go back in, they wouldn't let me add any more money. That fund has continued to generate 30% annualized returns since I sold some of my exposure. I'm glad I still have the exposure that I have, but it could be a lot more. So hold on to your winners if there hasn't been any changes to how they're going about their strategy, because momentum can be volatile, but it's very difficult to figure out when the momentum will take off again. Finally, as for inflation overall, stocks and equity REITs have generated positive real returns over the long term. Even though in some inflation regimes, stocks might not have done as well, although momentum has, and value has done decently during periods of high inflation. But over longer term holding periods, they're generating positive real returns. And that's what we want as investors assets that will generate positive real returns to maintain our purchasing power, to help us grow our assets' net of inflation. Many real assets have also done so, including land, rental real estate, and collectibles. The key then is to have a variety of asset classes. If you have held a diversified portfolio over the past several years of stocks, of bonds, of REITs, of real assets, more than likely your portfolio has handily outpaced inflation. So continue to diversify. Perhaps consider some momentum-type strategies. Just consider it another tool in the toolbox and probably makes sense to avoid some of these managed future strategies because they are so difficult to implement. That then is episode 367. Thanks for listening. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly the free podcast helps with that. But have you subscribed to my email newsletter? It's where I share an essay on money investing in the economy each week to that list of thousands of of email subscribers, I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for almost seven years now. PLUS membership gives members the tools and resources they need to manage their investment portfolios. Not only can you tap into my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, but my research is backed by top-tier institutional research partners such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSCI, Refinitiv Data Stream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions. you also access a community of over 1,000 members to get their insights. Money for the Restless Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to institutional research services that cost tens of thousands of dollars per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more at MoneyForTheRestOfUs.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.